hearty good morning to all of those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God. Welcome. I invite you to turn in God's Word to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Uh, we will be meditating together, especially on verses 1 through 14. John 14, 1 through 14. Let's hear God's Word together. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your steadfast love and faithfulness. We thank you that you are our God and we are your children. We thank you for the unshakable, immovable, unchanging, rock-solid relationship that we have you with you through the shed blood of your son, Jesus. And Father, as we consider your steadfast love, we pray that you would exhibit your faithfulness to our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. We pray, Father in heaven, that you would graciously sustain them through this ordeal. Grant that their faith would not fail. Grant that they would continue trusting in you and your son, Jesus, to the end. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased to restrain evil in the Ukraine. And we pray that you would use all of the turmoil, all of the ways in which life has been unsettled in Ukraine to advance your good purposes, to advance your kingdom as people look for answers in your son, Jesus. We pray that the gospel would advance even in the midst of this turmoil. And Father, as we consider Ukraine, we also consider how blessed we are here in the West. Thank you for the social stability that we enjoy, relatively speaking, but thank you for the social stability that we enjoy. Uh, thank you for the material prosperity that, that we enjoy. Thank you for all of your blessings and gifts that are all around us in such abundance. We do ask, Lord, that we would be wise in stewarding these many blessings. Uh, we pray that our first priority in life would not be to 
um, please ourselves and to pursue wealth and, uh, and to use your blessing self-indulgently, we ask for your blessing to live for your glory. And so if we're living selfishly, selfishly at any place, Father, we pray that you'd expose that and lead us to repentance and help us to use our blessings fundamentally to advance your purposes, not ours. Father, we ask that you would use your word this morning to change us, to make us more like Jesus, and to cause us to be a lot more intentional in the way that we live, that we might be instruments of advancing your kingdom. Amen. Farewells, as we know, are always momentous occasions when you go to the airport and you say goodbye to a friend or family member. Uh, that's often a weighty, difficult moment. Some people prefer to not say too much, stiff upper lip, lip sort of approach. Others, uh, more sentimental, like to really commemorate the occasion. But farewells are always momentous. And we are uh, in the middle of a farewell dinner in this chapter that we've read. Uh, Jesus is about to depart. This is his final meal with his followers. And there is a weightiness. There is a, it's a somber occasion. As we look at this passage and we see how Jesus prepares his disciples for his imminent departure, we will note this morning three things. First, we will consider our hope. Second, Jesus's identity. And third, our mission. So our hope, Jesus's identity, and our mission. Notice what Jesus says in 14.1 to his disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. They're tempted to feel angst, uh, fear as they contemplate an uncertain future. And the reason for that is because, A, Jesus has told them that one of his inner circle, one of his disciples, is about to betray him. So the question is, who? So there's talk of betrayal. And then in addition, Jesus has just told them that he's about to leave. And that where he is going, they can't come. And that means that there is this solemn parting of the ways between Jesus and his disciples. Uh, they've been close to Jesus all of these years during his public ministry. They've spent all of this time together, but now there is a parting of the ways. And so as they contemplate the betrayal in the future and Jesus' departure, their hearts are heavy with angst and fear about the future. But Jesus encourages them, believe in God, believe also in me. Notice the parallel between believing in God and believing in Jesus. Uh, the implication is that Jesus is just as worthy of our trust as God is, as the Father is. Because, of course, Jesus is himself God. It, it points to his divinity. But when our hearts are troubled, filled with fear about the future or whatever, what we ought to do is trust God and trust in Jesus. We ought to take a step back from our circumstances because that's what we tend to do, right? When things are difficult, we tend to take a magnifying glass and look at the things that terrify us. But in moments like this, we need to take a step back and we need to see our situation in light of who God is. We need to remember God and we need to trust in him and his provision for us. Specifically and practically, that means that we need to rehearse the promises of God. We need to remember what God has pledged himself to do. So when we look at an uncertain and possibly ominous future, we need to remember, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We need to remember the words of Jesus, that I will be with you to the end of the age. I will be with you always to the end of the age. And that we need to 
prayerfully apply that truth to ourselves. If Jesus is going to be with me to the end of the age, then he is going to be with me in this specific situation. He is going to provide light and wisdom and direction and power so I can face it. That's what practically it means to believe in God, to take what he has promised to do, the truth about who he is, and we need to remind ourselves of that truth, preach it to ourselves, and rest in it. Then Jesus goes on to give them some more specific encouragement in verse 2. There is a separation coming, he says, but it's not going to last forever. In my Father's house are many rooms. In other words, God has a house. It's a big house. There are a lot of rooms. And there is a place for you in the Father's house. The home you've always wanted is ahead of you. Jesus says, or implies in verse 2, that his words have been entirely reliable. Everything that he has told his disciples have proved true. And therefore, if he has told them that he's going to the Father to prepare a place, of course it will happen. And it's opposite Uh, can't happen. He will certainly bring about this home that he has promised uh, to his people. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So we're going to be separated just a short while. We're going to go down two different paths, but rest assured that that's not the final outcome. The final outcome is that I'm going to come again, and this is a reference to the second coming. Jesus is saying, I'm coming back, and when I come back, I'm going to bring you to me, and no one's going to separate us then. We will be together forever, and we will be together forever in the Father's house. The home that you've always wanted will come when I come to take you to be with me where I am. So this separation, it's weighty, it's hard, but it's not the last word. I'm coming again, and we will be together. Jesus encourages their troubled hearts by pointing them to the hope that they have through him. Uh, Hope is one of the three central virtues in the New Testament. Faith, hope, and love. And when the New Testament speaks of hope, it doesn't use the word the the way that we often use the word hope. Hope, uh, we we usually, when we say I hope for something, uh, we're not sure that the thing that we want to have happen will happen, uh, but there's a chance it will. So we might say, for instance, I hope I get a raise. We're not sure we're going to get a raise, but it would be nice if we did, right? There isn't certainty. Well, the New Testament usage, you are sure. Hope means certainty in the present about some future good that is absolutely guaranteed by God. It's not a question of whether Jesus will come back and bring the home we've always wanted, just a question of when. And in times of trouble and distress, when we face uncertainty and heartache, Jesus is saying, you need to feed on that hope. Now, it's never advisable to look too much into the future. Generally speaking, the best thing you can do is look at your responsibilities today. Sufficient for today is God's grace. And you don't need to worry too much about the future, only as much as you have to for the sake of being faithful today. But if you are going to look to the future, then look to the absolute future. Look to the distant horizon of Christ's return and recognize that he's coming back and you will be with him forever. And and therefore, you have every reason to be encouraged even in the midst of life's troubles. Recognizing that we have this hope and feeding on this hope helps to put our troubles into their proper perspective. 
It's very difficult to endure hardship when you see no end in sight. When you look forward and, and all you can see is turmoil and difficulty, it's hard to press on. But having hope means that you recognize that however difficult the present is right now, however weighty your circumstances are, they're not going to last forever. The darkness is passing. And one day, Jesus is going to return and all will be well. The sorrows of this life are passing. Uh, the return of Christ is, as it were, around the corner. So press on just a little bit longer. It's one of the ways that hope sustains us. But secondly, hope sustains us by just reminding us that we have a really bright future ahead of us. However grim our circumstances in the present might be, the future is wonderful, unimaginably wonderful. First of all, Jesus says, I'm coming back and you're going to be with me. Right now, we have a relationship with Jesus by faith. We don't see him as he is with our eyes, uh, but we have a relationship with him. But one day, the day is coming when we will see Jesus. The day is coming when we will live in his immediate presence and we will see the glory of God and nothing and no one will separate us from God forever. We will then find uh, the thing that our hearts have longed for all our lives in the presence of Jesus. And then when Jesus returns, we're going to get the home that we've always wanted. The language here is interesting. It's, it's the Father's house. This is a dwelling place. Uh, we, we know what it's like to want an ideal home. This is a preoccupation for a lot of modern people, right? The perfect home, the dream home. What renovations can we make? What places can we get to make it the ideal home? Well, the fact is, biblically speaking, you can't get your perfect home until Jesus comes back. Uh, every, every home along the way is kind of like a hotel, a temporary dwelling. One of the ways that Scripture describes our status as rebels against God is, a, is homelessness. Consider the opening uh, account in Scripture. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebel against God. They disobey His command. And they lose not just their relationship with Him, uh, His presence, but they lose the garden that God had intended to give them as their home. They become, to use the language of Genesis 4, restless wanderers on the earth. What makes home home finally is that God is there. And in losing God and the garden, they have become homeless, wanderers, cosmic vagabonds, if you want. Uh, always searching for a home uh, uh, in this world and never quite finding it. We turn to Abraham. What does God tell Abraham? Leave your home. Go be a stranger in a strange land. So he spends his, much of his life wandering, not, never having a plot of land that he can call his own. The Israelites wander for 40 years in the desert. They're not home. And intriguingly, even after Israel comes to the land, uh, they come to dwell in the land that God has promised them, they're still, in a sense, not home. Even 350 years after they come into the land, God says this to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall shall afflict them no more, I will give them rest from all your enemies. So even like 350 years after living in the land, there's a sense in which they haven't been planted. There's a sense in which they haven't come to the rest and the home that they had longed for. And of course, that's true when Israel is exiled from her land because of her disobedience to the covenant, taking, taken away into captivity, homeless again. And even when we arrive at the New Testament, 
God's people are described as strangers, pilgrims, wanderers, travelers in this world. In this life, however good our circumstances are, we've not arrived to the final destination, to our true home. But, says Jesus in this passage, the home that our hearts long for, the place that we were made for, is coming. And it is coming when he returns. And when we arrive to that home, we will say, ah, this is the place that I've longed for all my life. This is the place I belong. So Jesus encourages us here to look to the future, the distant horizon more often than we do, to feed on the hope of his second coming and to put the fears and troubles of this life in the context of his return. Many of us aren't good about doing that. Our focus is uh, limited to the present, but Jesus is saying, find comfort by looking at what's to come. Find comfort in my return. So that's the first thing we see, our hope. Second thing we see is Jesus' identity, especially his identity as the way to the Father. Jesus says, so that's what's going to happen, and you know the way to where I'm going. But Thomas uh, intervenes and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so we can't know the path. Sort of common sense response. We don't know the destination, so we can't know the the path. So Jesus, as it were, takes out the map and points the path that they need to take to get to where he's going. Not literally, of course. Uh, Jesus says to them, okay, you want to know the way? I am the way and the truth and the life. Now those two words, truth and life, modify the word way. They tell us more about the way. Jesus is saying, if you want to go to God the Father, to his dwelling place and experience eternal blessedness, you know how to get there? You get there through me. I am the one who can take men and women and children and bring them into the life-giving presence of the Creator. There is a way to God. There is a way to eternal blessedness, happiness, and life. And it is through me. I am that way. And Jesus is that way precisely because he's the truth. The final, climactic, decisive, ultimate revelation of God is in Jesus. This is God's final and fullest revelation of himself. He is the absolute truth about God, and therefore he is also the way. And he is the life in the sense that he imparts resurrection life. As we saw in chapter 11, when Jesus said, Lazarus, live, Lazarus, rise. What does Lazarus do? He gets up, because the words of Jesus Christ are powerful. And so also on the last day, he's going to say, live, and the dead will rise. He is the one who gives life and brings people to God. Indeed, he is not just the way, sorry, he is not just a way, I should say. He is the way to God. There's an exclusivity that Jesus underscores in the second part of verse 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is not one path among many, but the only way that human beings can have a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ, his Son, by faith in Jesus. Now, this exclusivity rubs many modern people the wrong way. People today don't like that claim. Many don't. Uh, They don't believe that there's only one path to God. They believe that there are many paths to God. Uh, A person can reach God through many different religions. And it seems narrow and cramped and constrained to say that there's only one way. Perhaps Jesus is a way. Surely not the only way. And this is just a basic assumption for many people. This is a given. So much so that it's used as sort of a measuring stick of any truth claim that says the opposite. Any truth claim that doesn't agree with that assumption is deemed to be wrong. 
So it's worth asking, is that assumption warranted? Should we think that there are, in fact, many paths to God? Well, the first thing to notice about that assumption is that it's unwarranted. It's not self-evident or necessary. Why assume there are multiple paths to God instead of just one? Just as possible that there's one rather than many. Uh, what, what's the basis for thinking that there are many paths to God? Why think that? If we really ask that question, what often becomes apparent is we think that because that's kind of the, the, the social consensus. In this society, that's just a, a given that many people have. And so there's nothing really undergirding that assumption. It's just what people think. Uh, who's to say that, you know, if there's a walled garden, you should get in by, only, by seven paths instead of one path, right? It's just not self-evident. It's not necessary. But second thing to notice is that uh, many religions of the world make contradictory and conflicting claims about God. So Christianity teaches that God is absolute, but also personal. You can have a relationship with him, and he's also Lord of everything. Hinduism teaches that uh, God is an impersonal absolute, an impersonal principle. And you don't so much have a relationship with God as get absorbed into God in some way. Those are two very different conceptions of God, two very different paths. And if you choose one, you say no to the other. Those are mutually exclusive. Same thing holds true when we think, for instance, of Christianity against uh, Judaism or Islam. Christians believe that Jesus is God in the flesh and worthy of worship and adoration. To reject Jesus is, not to, wor- is to fail to worship God the way he wants to be worshipped. Jews and Muslims fail to worship God according to God's final revelation in Jesus. They are not honoring God. They've taken a different path. And similarly, they would say Christians are failing to honor God because they're worshiping a a, a mere man and giving him the honor that should belong to God. These are contradictory, incompatible claims. To choose one is to reject the other. So what we see, and the reason I underscore this point, is that it's not at all obvious that there are many paths to God. There are reasons for doubting that there are many paths to God. And if this is the case, then saying that there are many paths to God is a reason to disbelieve in Jesus. That's just a bad reason to disbelieve in Jesus. Uh, Don't allow the prevailing errors in the world that we live in to keep you from accepting the claims of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says to you today, and he says to all of us today, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other path to God but by me. Receive him and experience the salvation that he alone can bring. But there is a sense in which Jesus brings us to the Father, uh, different from the one he's just given. So Jesus is the path to God. He takes us to God. He takes away our sins so we can have a relationship with God. But Jesus is also the one in whom God dwells, such that if you are in the presence of Jesus Christ, you are also in the presence of God. Look at verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is saying, if you know me, you know God. To have one is to have the other. And this has been a theme in John's gospel, right? You look at the Son, you see the Son, you have the Son, you also have the Father. Now, now Philip in verse 8 displays his ignorance. He says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. What Philip wants is this spectacular display of God. Show us the Father, says to Jesus, and then we will be satisfied. That is enough. Philip essentially wants what so many people want. 
to behold the Creator, to enter into His sacred presence. But notice, what does Philip's request assume? It assumes that to know God, you have to know God independently of Jesus, that He's not revealed in Jesus. And then Jesus corrects him. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is saying, don't you get it? When you behold me, my teaching, and my works, you are seeing God. You are seeing the Father. This is where his glory shines supremely and most brightly. And that's because I and the Father are one. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. There's this idea that there's a profound unity between the Father and Son. The Son contains the Father. The Father contains the Son, such that if you have one, you have the other. Such that if you see one, you see the other. To see Jesus, to see his works, is to see God. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. If you're struggling to believe, Jesus says, look at what I've done. Look at the way I've turned water into wine. Look at the way that I have stilled the storm on the sea with just a word of command. Look at the way I've multiplied the bread and the fish to, fit, to feed a hungry multitude. Look at the way that with a word I summon the dead to life. And as you are reflecting on those works, realize that this is not simply a man empowered by God to perform miracles, but this is God in the flesh in your midst doing what only God can do. And understand that you are seeing God himself in the flesh. God's supreme revelation of himself in me. It's an amazing statement, reiterated in different ways throughout the Gospel of John. To be in the presence of Jesus is to be in the presence of the Father. To see him is to see the Father. Now, the implications of this are vast. But one crucial implication is that every attempt to experience God to have a spiritual experience apart, Jesus, apart from Jesus is misguided. Like We live in a world where people hunger and thirst for spiritual experience. There's a, there's a longing for this kind of thing. Uh, there's an interest in various meditation techniques to get into contact with the supernatural somehow. Uh, there's an interest in you know, solitude and nature to somehow get in touch with something primal and transcendent. Uh, the use of drugs, perhaps. There's a lot of spiritual tinkering, as one author puts it, you know, drawing on different religions and different spiritualities and saying, oh, I like this practice from this religion. Oh, and that's a nice idea from that religion. And you put together your own sort of hodgepodge of ideas, and this becomes your unique religion. This is all fueled by a desire to come before God. In a sense, uh, to get to your, they're seeking what Philip is seeking. Show us the Father, and it will be enough. It's this desire for transcendence. But every, every single attempt to come into the life-giving presence of God apart from Jesus is a dead end. It will be a failure. You won't find what you're seeking. Indeed, every such attempt is actually an act of disobedience. You're failing to take the one way to God that he has given and trying to create your own way that he has not sanctioned. If we want to experience God, if we want to come into the sacred presence of the Creator, then we need to come to Jesus in faith. 
It is by trusting Jesus, walking with Jesus, and worshiping Jesus that we also experience the very presence of God. What this means practically is that we immerse our intellects and our hearts in the word of God. Where does the glory of God shine supremely? Well, according to this passage, it shines in Jesus. And where do we see that glory? Well, we see it in Scripture. Scripture is God's divinely inspired witness to the person and work of Jesus. So when we behold the person and work of Jesus by faith in Scripture, we're not just imbibing ideas, but we are encountering God himself. Or to put it another way, uh, we don't see God's glory with our eyes, we see God's glory with our ears. Meaning, it's as we hear God's word and believe it that we encounter God in the person of his son, Jesus. So at the, the essence of Christian spirituality and communion with God is that it's word-centered and Christ-centered. Uh, it is through the word, by believing it, that we see God. And in seeing God, we actually encounter him and have fellowship with him in the present. D.A. Carson is a New Testament scholar, and he has an article on New Testament and biblical spirituality. And he writes, very helpfully, the, the heavy stress in scripture on understanding, absorbing, meditating upon, proclaiming, memorizing, reading, and hearing the word of God is so striking that it will be ignored at our peril. That is why the best of the evangelical heritage has always emphasized what, we might, what might be called the spirituality of the word. There's a reason the word is central to what we do corporately and, and even in terms of our personal devotions. That's where we encounter the living God, when we behold Jesus by faith. If you want an experience of God, go to Scripture and go to Christ. I think this helps us also to protect ourselves against deviant spiritual techniques. Any technique that promises us you know, an experience of God, but that technique puts Jesus in the background or Scripture in the background, we should look at that technique with suspicion. We should be wary of it because communion with God happens through the Word and through Christ. Okay. We don't finally, in verses 12 through 14, what our mission is. Strewn about this whole section, John 13 to 17, are indications of what the disciples of Jesus are supposed to do after he leaves. Uh, and uh, these verses are one of them. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now stop. Just think about that. First thing to notice is whoever. So this statement is not limited to the disciples or apostles. This is everybody who believes in Jesus. This verse will be true of them. And all of those who believe in Jesus will do greater works than he did. What does that mean? Well, I think we can confidently rule out the idea that greater works means that we will perform greater miracles than he did. Uh, if you compare, for example, the book of Acts and the miracles performed by the apostles in the book of Acts with the miracles performed by Jesus, I think you'd agree that while spectacular, the apostolic miracles are not greater than the miracles of Jesus. I mean, at no point does Peter or Paul look at the stormy sea and say, be still. 
and the storm stops. Jesus does that. They don't. At no point do Peter and Paul take the bread and the fish and multiply it and feed a hungry multitude. Now, Peter does, through the power of Jesus, raise Tabitha from the dead, but not like Jesus does with Lazarus. Lazarus has been dead for four days, and through his authoritative summons, Lazarus is brought back to life. So the works of Jesus, just in terms of their power and magnificence, remain unmatched, even by the apostles. So then the question remains, what does it mean to do greater works? And I think the crucial hint is uh, the phrase that says, because I'm going to the Father. So you're going to do greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Jesus has been saying that the hour of his glorification is coming. By glorification, Randy showed us that that means that Jesus is going to display who he is. We're going to see the ultimate truth about Jesus in his crucifixion and exaltation at the right hand of God. Here we will see what Jesus is really like in his death, resurrection, exaltation. This will be the climax of his revealing activity. So the greater works that we will do after he goes to the Father is that we will witness with greater clarity about Jesus because his work will have been completed. His work is not yet done, right? The disciples are still not quite seeing the truth about Jesus clearly. Philip, for instance, doesn't see that in seeing Jesus, he sees the Father. There's still some ambiguity, some uncertainty. But after the resurrection, it will be clear who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. Even the miracles that he's been performing, like their full significance isn't yet clear, but it will be clear once he goes to the Father. And so the greater works that his disciples will do is that they will be able to point with greater clarity to the person and work of Jesus and say, this is the truth about him. And empowered by the Holy Spirit, uh, the church will be used by Jesus to draw many to himself. That's the idea here. That's the thrust of what Jesus is saying. Now, consider what that implies for you. There's an implication here for our walk with Jesus. And the implication is that we are ought to be on mission to help others know and grow in Christ. We all have a responsibility, whoever has a responsibility, uh, to help other people see Jesus, know him, and grow in him. This means that we have the privilege, the joy, the responsibility of reflecting Jesus to the world in both what we say and what we do. Uh, we have a responsibility in, uh, to be very careful in the way that we conduct ourselves and the way we speak and our attitudes uh, because we are reflecting Christ to the world. In uh, his letter to Titus, Paul writes that we have a responsibility to adorn the gospel. Through our speaking, through our attitude, through our actions, we ought to make Jesus look lovely to the people around us and especially to the unbelievers around us. Because the world is watching and they can see the discrepancy between what we say and what we do. So we reveal Jesus through our conduct, but also through our speech. All believers, to a degree, are called to be evangelists, that is, proclaimers of the good news. So if you had been an Israelite, and you had been a captive under Pharaoh for years, you had been a slave, and then all of a sudden, God through Moses shows up and performs these spectacular signs, and the chains are taken off of your wrists, and you march out into freedom, and you see God destroy Pharaoh's army. Do you think you could have contained yourself and not have told other people? 
Uh, granted, if you want to quibble, they, they proved that they were faithless to God pretty quickly. Never mind, you see my point. Uh, they probably couldn't have helped themselves. They would have been talking about God's great deliverance at every turn to one another and anybody who crossed their paths. They were once slaves, but God, through his uh, powerful right hand, delivered them, and now they are a free people. You couldn't help talking about that. Well, then how much more should God's new covenant people, us Christians, the church, proclaim the great works of God? We were once, we were once dead in our sins and trespasses, in bondage to sin and Satan and death, and God, through his son Jesus, has rescued us from the darkness, and we are now in the light. It should be weird that we are not talking about our salvation. Like We should be declaring it and celebrating it and rejoicing in it in, in a, with one another and then to the world. And we should be inviting them to join us in this great work of redemption accomplished by our Lord Jesus Christ. It's weird not to talk about Jesus. All of us, regardless of gifting, and some of us are going to be better than others, I get that. But regardless of gifting, ha have the privilege and responsibility of telling others about Jesus. You might say, well, I'm not very good. I'm not very gifted at this. Do what you can. You don't have to do it as well as anybody else. You just have to do what you can. If you can do it badly, do it badly. But do, but do something. Open your mouth. Talk about Jesus. And I would add this by way of encouragement. This is not an all or nothing sort of thing. Take baby steps. If you're, if you're currently doing nothing, pray for non-Christians in your life. Ask Jesus to change them. Or, or just, if, if nobody at work knows you're a Christian, fly the flag. You know, let them know, I went to church Sunday. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. Read a book on how to do personal evangelism. Edu educate yourself a little bit. Uh, invite people over. There are baby steps you can take to, to become a little bit more faithful in this work of sharing Jesus with other people. But all of us have the privilege of doing that. Is, that, is there a category in your life for that? Is that a priority at all? It should be, according to what Jesus says. But of course, helping people follow Jesus begins in the home. Basic to following Jesus Christ is helping the people in your household follow Jesus Christ. I want to underline this point, put an exclamation point at the end of that sentence, because as basic as it is, it's frequently neglected. Husbands, you have a responsibility to work for the spiritual development and maturation of your wife to pray for her, to encourage her, to, to share scripture with her, not in a heavy-handed, suffocating way. Be clear about that. Uh, so, some husbands, some fathers have a real knack for, for taking scripture, which should impart life, and sucking the life out of the people around them. Okay, That's you, repent. All right? But, but husbands should thoughtfully, winsomely, and wisely Share scripture with their wives for their spiritual good. And wives should love their husbands and pray for their spiritual development. Encourage them with scripture. And then, of course, no Christian child raised in a Christian home should be ignorant of scripture and doctrine. That should be a given. If you're a Christian parent, you have a holy, fundamental responsibility before God to raise your kids to be biblically literate and love Jesus and know doctrine and uh, to walk in the light, which means you need to spend time with them, you need to pray with them and read scripture, you need to form them spiritually. And if you need to say no to other things so you can do that, you need to do that. Absolutely foundational. It, it's the thing without which nothing else can really be accomplished. Now you might say, I don't know how to do that, I don't, I don't have a category for that, I didn't grow up in a Christian home where that was modeled. Okay, I understand. Uh, many, many people don't. But, but the response is, I don't know, so I don't do it. It's, I don't know, so I better get educated. 
I need to talk to other families who are doing it and ask how they're doing it and get resources. But children of believers should be discipled from a, a young age and taught to follow Jesus Christ. One entailment of what Jesus is saying here is raising children to walk in the fear of God. Are you doing that? If not, what do you need to change yesterday to do it? But here's an encouragement. It's kind of a stern uh, admonishment there. Let me, let me encourage you with verses, verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and the Father, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. No, uh, when Jesus speaks of asking in his name, this is not just a matter of repeating a verbal formula. God asks in the name of Jesus. So if you repeat the formula, he'll do whatever you want. It's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying when we ask in his authority, in line with everything that is true of him, he will answer that prayer. If you ask, if you ask me anything in my name, according to the truth as it's revealed in me, I will do it. This is especially encouraging because this is in the context of doing the works that he did which as we've seen is, means making Jesus known to others. So Jesus is saying, as you roll up your sleeves to help other people follow Jesus and make an impact in their lives, as you pray to me for help, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to answer those prayers. It is prayers especially in the context of mission, in the context of helping people follow him. Ask in my name and I'll help you. It's an amazing promise. So when you go to disciple that kid or talk to your wife or share the gospel with that non-Christian, pray. Say, Lord, you want us to make disciples of others. This is according to your word. I'm asking in your name. I'm confident you're going to answer this prayer. You're going to be with me. One more thing. Not only does Jesus answer those prayers, but there's a sense in which he's working through you. Whatever you ask, ask in my name, this I will do. Not simply in the sense that he's going to answer your prayer, but in the sense that he's going to work through you to accomplish his purpose. Same thing, verse 14. Ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. It's the great theme of the book of Acts. Jesus doesn't stop, stop working when he goes to heaven. He continues to work, but he works through his people, through the church, through the, Holy, through the Holy Spirit in the church. And so as we seek to help others follow Jesus, not only is he going to answer prayer, but there's a sense in which he's going to work through us. There's a sense in which our works are his works uh, for the advancement of his kingdom and his glory. What that means is that we should have tremendous confidence as we roll up our sleeves to help others follow Jesus. Jesus is going to be with us, working through us, answering our prayers. So we should do it. Now, what specifically needs to change in your life for this call to point people to Jesus to be actualized? Right? All, our call, all of us are called to make an impact in the lives of others for Jesus. What priorities need to change? What do you need to do differently so that you can make this mission more of a priority than it currently is in your life? We need to think about that with specificity and concreteness, recognizing that Jesus calls all of us to make him known. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the hope that you have given to us. We thank you that you are coming again and that we will be with you forever. Father, cause your hope, the hope that your son has declared in this passage, to burn brightly in our hearts, to give us strength when we are weary and discouraged to press on. And Lord Jesus, we ask that our lives would not be sterile, but full of spiritual fruit as we seek to love others, disciple them, and nudge them closer to you, Lord.
Bless our labors as only you can. Uh, Do this, Lord, for our joy and your glory. Amen.